Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is James Britton. I am a bankruptcy associate at the firm of Aaron Fox Schiff LLP uh, here in Boston. Um, there's like a preliminary announcement, I guess, before we get started here. Uh, I was supposed to co-present this presentation with uh, my colleague, Mark Tetralt at Goodland Proctor. He's the co-chair with me as the other co-chair of the Boston Bar Association Bankruptcy Division's Young Lawyers Division. Uh, but uh, he's ill. He's not feeling well today, so he's unable to uh, co-present with me. So I will be doing this myself. <laughs> so it's possible that we might be a little, uh, I might finish it a little quicker than the 5 p.m. scheduled start time because we had planned on doing this as a duo and uh, I sometimes tend to talk fast. So if we run a little uh, short, uh, you can blame Mark for that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hope he's feeling okay. Uh, so this presentation is Bankruptcy Law Basics. And as the title would imply, it's meant to give a very fundamental preliminary level understanding of bankruptcy for people with like only very introductory or no experience whatsoever, uh, pretty much to tell you what the most common concepts you're likely to encounter in bankruptcy are, whether you're going to be a bankruptcy practitioner or going to be, you know, a litigator, a commercial lawyer who ends up running into bankruptcy issues from time to time. And then you run screaming to the bankruptcy lawyers like me because nobody else wants to do that stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, so if you have some background in bankruptcy already, some of this might already be familiar to you. Um, but otherwise, I think it will be useful for everybody, even if it's just for a refresher. Uh, so with that, let's get started. Uh, I want to actually caveat these first slides with the reminder that Mark was supposed to co-present these. I don't take any responsibility for these crude drawings. Uh, I will present them, but I don't want you to think that uh, my artistic ability is represented here by these stick figures. Um, so what we're going to start out with here is uh, basically a little pictorial depiction of the bankruptcy process in uh, you know very simplistic settings. Here we have David the debtor, right? So he's the protagonist of our story. He's got some assets of, in his one hand and he has debts in his other, uh, and he has a house, which is, I guess, his main asset as it is with most people who are fortunate enough to <laughs> have assets. Um, Oh, I see that somebody's actually familiar with these uh, drawings. David Mulwiney apparently was the artist responsible for these, so I'll give him credit where it's due. Uh, this slide deck was passed down to me. Um, so anyway, with credit to uh, David Mulwiney, thank you for that. Uh, David here, David the debtor, his debts outweigh his assets. So what does he do? He... Uh, well, here is another, sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. His home is underwater, okay? Which means that he owes more on his mortgage than the house is worth. You can see he has $300,000 in debt and his house is only worth $200,000. So it's underwater by $100,000. And then over here, he's got his creditors all tearing him apart, looking for a piece of him. Uh, he's got his medical debt, car payments, student loans, credit card debt. Those are all the most common representations of uh, debt that force people into bankruptcy. Uh, so those four are usually what you're going to see in an individual debtor case, especially medical debt. That's usually, I think, the number one cause of people filing for bankruptcy. Um, so the solution here is David files for bankruptcy. Um, so what does that mean for David on day one? It means that as of the petition date, which is the day that he files for bankruptcy, the automatic stay, it's a, we'll get to that in more depth later. Uh, the automatic stay, which is this giant wall right here, uh, now prevents anybody from taking any action against his assets. 
So now he's over here with this sack of money and his house on one side of the on next day. All of his creditors are over here on the other side of the automatic stay. They can't do anything against him. They can't take any action as long as that automatic stay is in place and his assets are safe for the time being. He gets a little reprieve from uh, the bill collectors and the medical debt and everything. Um, so I think that in this case, it's a chapter seven tra uh, bankruptcy. We'll get to that as well. But uh, so the next thing that happens is David meets the trustee. The trustee is uh, basically a person who's appointed to administer David's estate, which means his assets. And the estate here is depicted as this giant sack with his house in it because his house is one of his assets. And all of his non-exempt assets go into the estate. Now, once uh, all of the estate assets are uh, you know, marshaled together, the trustee uses her strong arm powers to avoid and recover property David transferred to a preferred creditor on the eve of bankruptcy. You can see the trustee's strong arm right there. And what that means basically, um, there's a couple terms in there you may not be familiar with. First of all, the strong arm power, otherwise known as the avoidance power, means that when you declare bankruptcy, um, it's not limited to just the day you declare bankruptcy, okay, the petition date. Because what if conceptually you paid one creditor all of their debts right before you filed for bankruptcy, left all of your other creditors without paying them anything, then filed for bankruptcy, and now all of those other creditors cannot collect against you, whereas the other creditor got paid in full, okay? That's why it's called a preference because you have preferred that one creditor over the rest of your creditors, whereas bankruptcy is supposed to distribute assets evenly to all of your creditors within the statutory scheme. Uh, so the strong arm power means that the trustee can bring a avoidance action, a lawsuit basically against the person who you paid off preferentially to take those assets that you transferred and then they go back into the bankruptcy estate. So she's taking them from the creditor here and she's putting them back on the other side of the stay into the bankruptcy estate for distribution. Uh, well, there we go. I would I would have just clicked the next stay, uh, next slide. We would have seen that in action. Now, after uh, we have consolidated all the assets of the estate, the trustee has everything. She's ready to administer it. How do we determine who gets paid? Um, well, actually, the trustee prepares schedules of assets and liabilities. We'll get into that in a little bit in more detail. But generally, so the trustee, with the debtor's assistance, prepares a list of all of the debts and the debtors and how much their, I mean, the creditors and how much their claims are. And then the creditors either can accept whatever is on the schedules and receive that treatment, or if they're not listed on the schedule, or if they don't agree with the treatment, what they do is they file what's called a proof of claim. And that is just like it's a form that you find on the bankruptcy court's website. And you fill it out, you fill in your contact information, the amount of your claim, uh, some other information about the claim. You can attach documentation to it showing why um, why your bankruptcy, uh, why your claim is what it is. Uh, for instance, based on a loan or something like that, you can attach the promissory note. And then those, um, those proofs of claim are used to determine who gets distributed what from the bankruptcy estate. Uh, now, here's like a little aside here. Um, so one of the creditors here is the mortgage holder on David's house, the bank that owns the mortgage on his house. Uh, the bank wants to foreclose on David's house. Um, and so the only way you can do that is getting around the stay because you can't do anything in violation of the stay. So what the bank has to do is go to the bankruptcy court and ask the bankruptcy judge for relief from the automatic stay 
and usually the number one reason to be granted relief from the automatic stay is called uh, lack of adequate protection, which means that the asset that secures the creditor's claim, their collateral, in this case, the house, um, is in jeopardy of depreciating in value so that they're not going to have that security for their claim that they were entitled to, and they can't do anything about it because the bankruptcy stay is stopping them. So that they have to go to the bankruptcy court, make a showing as to why they're entitled to relief from the stay, and the judge, in this case, grants the relief. So now you can see the bank is hopping over to stay, and they're foreclosing on David's home. In this case, I guess David's house wasn't exempt. Uh, that's very important to note. Uh, if it was an exempt asset, then this would be different. Um, but then once, um, once um, the trustee has finished the claims process, right? Uh, they all the creditors have filed their proofs of claim. The trustee has finished the. Uh, you know, bringing back all of the assets of the estate from her strong arm powers and is ready to um, liquidate all the assets, which means sell them. And then once they're all reduced to money, then she distributes those uh, claims on a pro rata basis, um, which means just, you know, according to the proportion of the person's claim. Here, it's, I mean, it's usually conceptualized as everybody gets like the slice of the pie, which comprises all of the debtor's assets. Here, it looks like it's depicted as slices of pizza. I guess a pizza pie is still a pie, but you see the creditors are getting their piece of the pie. Uh, and then once, uh, once um, the judge receives the trustee's report of distribution or report of no distribution if they have no non-exempt assets to distribute. Then the judge grants the discharge to David, which means that all of the pre-petition debts that the creditors had against David are now discharged. They can't collect on them. They got their distribution of the pro rata amount of their claims through the bankruptcy, and that's all they're going to get then they can't sue David for them anymore. Now, that only applies, I mean, presuming that they had noticed the bankruptcy, had an opportunity to, uh, you know, share in the distribution. But generally, yes, they will be discharged. Uh, I see we have a question here, actually. I heard the automatic stay doesn't apply to the third bankruptcy filing. Is that correct? So actually, this is a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, if you get a discharge through like a chapter seven bankruptcy. Well, actually this deter this is a, a little bit more complicated even than that too, because there's two different kinds of discharges an individual can get here, which is a chapter seven discharge or a chapter 13 discharge. I guess an individual could also get a chapter 11 discharge, but that's not uh, that common. But um, you can file for chapter seven bankruptcy. This is jumping ahead a little bit here, but you can file for chapter seven bankruptcy where the trustee liquidates all your assets and then the creditors get their share and then you get the discharge. Or you can file for Chapter 13 bankruptcy uh, where you make a plan to like pay everything over time and your creditors have to agree to it and the trustee, the Chapter 13 trustee in that case, agrees to it that it's confirmable and the judge confirms it and then you perform the plan over time and then you get a discharge. Um, so those two discharges are different. And basically, if you file a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and you get a discharge, um, so I think I would have to, I think I'd have to look at the statute again to make sure, but you can't get another Chapter 7 discharge within eight years of the petition date of the filing of the first Chapter 7 that you got a discharge under. And for Chapter 13, I think if you filed a Chapter 7 and then you filed um, a Chapter 13 afterwards, it has to be later than four years to get a discharge. Um, as far as as far as uh, for third bankruptcy filings, 
Uh, that's what's called a serial filing. Well, I actually see somebody is responding in the uh, chat right now. Um, the bankruptcy court doesn't necessarily, the stay doesn't um, apply right away if you are what's called a serial filer, which means you have had a bankruptcy case dismissed within a certain amount of time of a previous bankruptcy filing. And um, you have to go into court and show why the stay should apply. Um, so yes, it's correct that if you have filed three bankruptcies within a certain amount of time, the automatic stay will not automatically apply. Uh, sorry, I went on a little bit of a tangent there. Uh, so discharge stops creditors from attempting to collect the pre-petition debts. I already covered that one. And uh, okay, that's the end of David's little story there. Um, so a question, another question comes in, can a small company such as an S Corp or LLC file a chapter seven? The answer is yes, uh, but they there's not really much basis to do it because uh, only individuals like human persons are entitled to receive a discharge under either chapter seven or chapter 11. A company can file for chapter seven, but it will not receive a discharge. Um, so normally they're filed as chapter 11s. Uh, even if the purpose is to liquidate it, they usually file for chapter 11 anyway, because courts will allow a sale of all assets through chapter 11. So yes, they are eligible generally. Uh, there's some special eligibility requirements for LLCs, I believe, because of the members. But uh, they can do it, but there's not really any reason to because they don't get the benefit of the discharge. Um, so who files the case? Oh, well, I could have just waited for this slide, I guess. Um, so the debtor is usually an individual. The vast majority, the vast, vast majority of bankruptcy filings are Chapter 7 individual bankruptcies. Uh, then they, there could be an organization or a municipality, which, you know, is a town uh, like Detroit, uh, filed a Chapter 9 bankruptcy. Chapter 9 is the special chapter for municipalities. Uh, a debtor can file a voluntary bankruptcy petition. That's also the vast majority of bankruptcies are filed by voluntary debtors. They elect to file for bankruptcy because they need the special provisions. Uh, in certain circumstances, it's comparatively rare, but there are involuntary bankruptcies. Now, and those are very interesting to me, but uh, basically if a debtor, a purported debtor has 12 or more creditors, each one who has, I think it's $10,000 in a uh, non-contingent undisputed claim. So like it, the debtor can't argue that they don't have a claim of over $10,000 and each of the uh, creditors comes together. They can file an involuntary petition against the debtor and put them into bankruptcy. Um, or if there's less than 12 creditors, then uh, only one creditor can file involuntary bankruptcy petition against a debtor, and then the debtor has to come and show why it shouldn't be in bankruptcy before the court enters an order for relief. Um, but that doesn't happen that often. Um, so who is in charge? Excuse me. So most cases, the debtor remains in control uh, of the, you know, the bankruptcy case for if it's a chapter 11 or a chapter 13, um, the debtor is called the debtor in possession, which is just like a fancy technical term to delineate that they are now operating on behalf of the debtor's bankruptcy estate and not just the debtor themselves, but there's not really a meaningful distinction to me. And conversely, in chapter seven cases, the trustee uh, is really running the show. The Chapter 7 trustee, they do everything as uh, illustrated by the strong arm slide. Um, because when the debtor is a debtor in possession, they can be the one that brings those strong arm claims. Now, in a Chapter 11, though, sometimes a Chapter 11 trustee is appointed. 
which is like the chapter seven trustee in that they come in and take over control of the debtor's operations. And now they're the only ones that can bring the claims and everything. They're like a receiver under state law, basically. Uh, and those usually only get put in when there's like uh, egregious mismanagement of the debtor's case or uh, a purported conflict of interest between the management or something like that. Um, and that's usually heavily litigated generally the appointment of a trustee because the debtor wants to remain in control of their chapter 11 case because that's the benefit of the chapter 11 case is that you get to shape the process a little bit. Um, now, there's a third um, constituency here, which is very interesting in chapter 11 cases uh, called the creditors committee. Um, I represent a lot of these. These are really fun to represent. Um, the creditors committee is a statutory committee that the United States trustee, now the United States trustee is not the chapter 11 trustee or the chapter seven trustee. The United States trustee is a office of the United States attorney's office that has a purview over bankruptcy matters, basically. So they're the government and they have like a rotating panel of trustees that they appoint for things. But they also will take uh, applications to serve on what's called the creditors committee in a chapter 11 case. And they select certain creditors, usually from the, I mean, they select them from the largest creditors that the uh, debtor has usually and try to make like a representative cross sample of the unsecured creditors and put them on this thing called the creditors committee. And uh, the creditors committee is like a private, um, basically, oversight um, mechanism of the debtor's bankruptcy case. Because remember that the bankruptcy is really, even though the goal is to rehabilitate the debtor and give them a fresh start, it's really being conducted for what reason? To give the creditors some distribution on account of their claims. Okay. Um, and so the creditors have a say in what's going on in the bankruptcy case, and their voice in the case is this creditors committee, and they uh, really have a very strong force in shaping like the confirmation of the debtor's plan and um, generally things like dip financing, debtor in possession financing. That's when the debtor needs to get a loan to operate through bankruptcy. Um, it's a very interesting, very unique role uh, that only really comes up in bankruptcy. And um, it's a little bit more complicated than uh, this presentation uh, allows me to get into without rambling too much. But, um, oh, well, there's another. So subchapter five, which is relatively recent, um, it's for small business cases. Uh, it's like an expedited, expedited fast track of um, for small businesses. Uh, you have to have, I think, less than like $7.5 million in um, debt that's not from like an affiliate. Um, so, you know, not, not crazy high, but, you know, they, it used to be much smaller, but after COVID, they raised the limit to make it a little bit more easy for people to get relief through subchapter five. But you don't get any, uh, you don't get any creditors committee in subchapter five. Instead, there's a subchapter five trustee, which is another special trustee that's appointed. And they pretty much serve the role of the creditors committee in playing like devil's advocate and trying to facilitate a good process. Uh, but the debtor still remains in control of the case. Um, sorry, that was a lot to go through, but uh, I think that uh, Noah will be sending copies of all of these slides to everybody who wants them after the presentation. So it's laid out a little bit more clearly in the slides than the way that I just explained it. Um, so the bankruptcy code, the general chapters, uh, chapter one is just, basically definitions and who can be a debtor. Um, and then chapter three, that is where uh, you get the 362 automatic stay um, 
And the other very important one in there is 365, which governs uh, the assumption or rejection of um, leases and executory contracts, which we'll get into in a minute. And then chapter five is really where like all of the uh, claims and strong arm powers are in, where the debtor can avoid fraudulent transfers and claw back money from creditors who they paid pre-petition that should be distributed to everybody instead of letting them retain it. And then uh, down here, we already went through this pretty much. Chapter seven is just to liquidate everybody's assets. If you're an entity, you don't exist anymore after chapter seven, that's it. Uh, if you're a person, you get a discharge. It, chapter nine, that's municipal debt. Chapter 11, that can be a chapter 11 reorganization. Although sometimes they end up being liquidating plans as well. Um, oftentimes they are used to facilitate sales. Um, chapter 12, that's for farmers, uh, family farmers and fishermen. That one I don't personally have a lot of experience with, to be honest with you. But it's very similar to chapter 13, I understand. Um, chapter 13, that's for individual, uh, like I mentioned, who want to pay on a plan over time. Um, and then chapter 15, that's for international cases. A lot of times, because you remember, uh, other countries have their own bankruptcy laws. So a lot of times there will be a big chapter 11 case for a company that is operating all throughout the world, right? So they're filing cases for administration in the UK or Australia or where, where have you. And there needs to be some level of coordination between these cases. Uh, so what happens is you get a chapter five foreign proceeding recognition so that the you just open up another bankruptcy case in the United States, keep them basically apprised of what's going on. And if there's any issues that require, you know, cross-border uh, solutions, that's like the vehicle for facilitating that. But they can get very complicated. Um, uh, this is just a more, uh, more thorough description of that last slide that I just went through. Um, so what is the general goal of bankruptcy? So the Supreme Court's quote that they use in like every bankruptcy opinion they write is that it's made for giving relief to the honest but unfortunate debtor. That means that you can't use bankruptcy as like a means of committing fraud. It's for if you ran into trouble financially and you just, you know, have more debts than you have assets, but that's not a result of any wrongdoing on your part. That's just the way things turned out. The bankruptcy code exists to both give you an opportunity to get out from under that debt and also still give your creditors a chance to receive some payment of their valid debt you owe them. So it's like, you know, uh, a little bit of meeting in the middle there. Um, and the equality of distribution among creditors is a big part of that. Um, we'll get to this a little bit more in the next slide, I think. But the uh, distribution is determined based on it's not everybody just shares everything equally. It's more like a waterfall where first these claims up here have to be paid in full. And then you go down to the next tier and those people have to be either paid in full or if they aren't, then it stops. And then it goes to the next tier. And then those people usually are the unsecured creditors and they're receiving a piece of whatever the pie is left. And then in the rare case, for that there's anything left after that, which is called a solvent debtor, uh, then the debtors, equity holders, get whatever is left, the owners. They have to be paid absolutely last, though, because of the absolute priority rule, which says all debt has to be paid before equity gets a one cent. Um, and as I mentioned, another big uh, feature of bankruptcy is facilitating asset sales. And Specifically, this is through chapter um, 363, uh, which is the asset sale provision, uh, because what's special about bankruptcy is that you're allowed to sell assets, what's called free and clear of liens, which means that if somebody you loan, somebody loaned you money, say, 
and you gave them a lien, like a mortgage on your house, or if you bought a car and you know bought it on credit, and the person has a lien on your car, for instance, you know, you can through bankruptcy. I mean, it's more complicated than this, but you can through bankruptcy sell that asset and strip off that creditor's lien, so the person buying it doesn't have to worry about that person's claim, because you know normally the lien would transfer to the house and then that per I mean, it would transfer to the next buyer. So the next buyer didn't, wouldn't want to buy it that way. This is something that's pretty unique to bankruptcy. There's not really any other laws um, elsewhere there where you can just uh, basically strip off somebody's security interest from an asset. And that's one of the main reasons a lot of companies file for bankruptcy is to facilitate sales like that. I am aware of, I think Florida now has a statute allowing uh, for like state law lien stripping, but that's very uncommon. That's the only state I'm aware of. There might be a couple others, but it's not very common at all. Um, the bankruptcy estate. So we already described what the bankruptcy estate itself is. It's all of the non-exempt assets, which I'll touch on exemptions, I think, on the next slide a little bit more. But importantly, things that the debtor comes into possession of uh, post-petition, after they file for the bankruptcy, those can be part of the bankruptcy estate too. Uh, so just because you get it after the petition date doesn't mean you get to keep it necessarily. And that's especially true of like inheritances or life insurance proceeds. Uh, because there's this time limit where if they come into effect within a certain amount of time after you file the bankruptcy, then that's considered like a windfall. So you have to put those back into the estate. But if they come in afterwards, after the 180 days, then you just get to keep them. So make sure um, there's not really any way to time those sorts of things unless you're aware of them beforehand. Uh, okay, exemptions. So if you recall back at the story at the beginning, David had to first put all of his non-exempt assets into the bankruptcy estate, right? What are uh, exempt assets? There's two manners of exemptions. Um, one, the bankruptcy code itself provides certain exemptions, but they're like very minimal. You're like, let me start from the beginning, actually. If you exempt if property is exempt, that means it's not part of the bankruptcy estate. So it, the creditors can't get a piece of it. And whether it's exempt or not is a matter of law. The bankruptcy code provides certain statutory exemptions. But as I said, they're very minimal. For instance, down here, uh, you see here the Massachusetts state law exemption for your house. So and this is for the equity in your house, not the absolute value of your house, which is important. Um, the Massachusetts state law exemption is $500,000. So if you have $500,000, up to $500,000 in equity in your house, and you claim that is exempt, the, the creditors can't touch that. The federal law homestead exemption, uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like $30,000. It's like very low. It's always going to be better to pick the state law exemptions. And actually, um, states are allowed to, in some states, you're not even able to choose uh, the federal exemptions for some reason. Um, so the federal exemption statute allows for states to either opt in or opt out of allowing or recognizing the federal exemptions. And I think only like 19 states allow you to use the federal exemptions. Massachusetts is actually one of them. But as I said, there's like really very little incentive to do so. Um, so generally, just make sure if you're ever going to be filing for bankruptcy, you look at what the state law exemptions are first. And if you're a creditor, of somebody who's filing for bankruptcy, make sure you know which ones, which of their property is exempt based on what state they're in as well. 
Um, so this is the automatic stay. Um, we already discussed it basically uh, in the opening slides that wall. I like to think of it more as a force field personally than the wall, just because it's cooler to me. But um, the stay prevents not only, now this is an important part, it doesn't only just affect, uh, you know, people stopping, it doesn't affect people stopping their actions to seize your property. Any claims that they were bringing against you in your personal capacity, like a litigation, for instance, that's considered an action against property of the estate. So all state law claims, all federal claims, they're stayed once the bankruptcy is uh filed they're cut off you have to go get relief from the stay now obviously that's another oversimplification because there's always exceptions uh um for instance criminal matters they're not stayed uh i mean that just makes sense why would you be able to get out of like a murder charge by filing for bankruptcy but um and the, like, those are all statutory um and then there's also a list of other exceptions the automatic stay, which include like um, spousal support actions. Those are very, the bankruptcy law actually is riddled with exceptions for spousal support obligations. You cannot get out of those generally. You can't discharge those. Those are very, divorce law and bankruptcy often intersect actually for personal bankruptcy. And the bankruptcy code very clearly gives a very special priority to spousal and child support obligations. So if you're in that nexus of the law, make sure you look at those carefully. Um, I should also mention, uh, with respect to the automatic stay, you can get relief from the automatic stay. And also, there's different types of relief from the automatic stay. You can sometimes get it annulled, which means that something you did in violation of the automatic stay is uh not it the court enters like retroactive relief they call it nunk pro tunk relief which means that it's like you never did the bad thing in the first place there's a question from the supreme court uh from one of their cases whether that's actually constitutional for them to be able to do that anyway uh the supreme court has a bunch of constitutional issues with bankruptcy really um but courts do bankruptcy courts do sometimes do that it's something to be aware of and another thing is if you do something in the violation of the automatic stay, this is actually very important. And I should have mentioned it at the beginning, because as a young lawyer, if you're in the bankruptcy space, uh, the last thing you want to do is counsel a client to do anything that would be in violation of the automatic stay, because you will sub be subjected to sanctions if you do anything in violation of the automatic stay. And if your client does something on your advice or... Uh, that's going to get them sanctioned by the court for violating the automatic stay, they're probably going to fire you, I imagine. Uh, so be very careful about whether the automatic stay applies and make sure that anything you do that requires relief from the automatic stay, you seek and grant, uh, grant get granted relief against uh, the automatic stay. We have another question here. Will the litigation against the debtor in state courts automatically be stayed when the debtor files bankruptcy and files a suggestion of bankruptcy in state courts? So, yes, um, this is a kind of a tricky question, actually, trickier than it seems. The short answer is yes, right? Um, because the automatic stay is automatic. Once the debtor files for bankruptcy, they go into the state court. Technically, the stay applies like as soon as they file for bankruptcy, but because it's a notice thing, they have to go into the state court litigation and file a suggestion of bankruptcy. Um, and then once they file the suggestion of bankruptcy, the state court is not allowed to take any more action uh, once they do that. Now, it's not really that simple, though, because just filing the suggestion of bankruptcy, if that were the case, uh, it could be abused, right? There's always the possibility that the state court determines from looking at the filing of notice of suggestion of bankruptcy, I'm sorry, from looking at the suggestion of bankruptcy, that the case is not stayed. And then the state court determines that since it's not stayed, it has jurisdiction to keep acting. A very common situation where you will see this happen is, for instance, if there's a state court litigation against like um, a 
a person, right? Like a, a human person. That's a lot of times they're like a guarantor, right? Because in a small company, uh, a lot of times an individual has to back all of their loans. So they sign a guarantee for them and they're being sued. That person is being sued by somebody who's a creditor of that person. And then the company that the person is guaranteeing the loan for that company files for bankruptcy, but the person doesn't file for bankruptcy. The company does. And then that person runs to the state court and files their notice of suggestion of bankruptcy in the state court saying like, look, this company filed for bankruptcy. This action is stayed against me. That's not going to this. The action isn't stayed because generally, with very few exceptions, uh, the automatic stay only applies to the debtor. That person in that scenario is not the debtor. They're, they might be a principal of the debtor. They might be a guarantor of the debtor. It doesn't matter. The stay is not going to help them. So just because they file a notice of suggestion of bankruptcy doesn't mean the state courts stop dead. They're going to look at it. They're going to determine that the law is that the stay does not apply to this action. And then they're just going to file a motion. To, they're going to strike the notice of bankruptcy from the state court docket. And then the litigation is going to proceed. But generally, yes, when you file a notice of suggestion of bankruptcy, generally the state will, uh, state, um, generally the state uh, court action is going to be stayed. Um, another question here is, will wages and salaries dischargeable for small business owners? Um, okay. So this is a, Employee wages are considered what's called a priority claim, okay? Um, well, this is actually going to be getting into this next section anyway, so it's a good question to start with. Um, employee wages are considered a priority claim up to a certain limit. So they have a statutory limit, $13,650. If you're an employee and you file a proof of claim for your unpaid wages, $13,650 of that claim needs to be paid to each and every single employee on behalf of their claim before any other creditor that is unsecured gets anything. Those are priority claims. That's that waterfall I was talking about. Now, everything after that amount is just an unsecured claim, okay? So you'll get whatever the pro rata distribution there is. Um, now, remember, remember that organizations don't get a discharge. So those claims aren't you know, going anywhere. They're just going to be claims that whatever they get paid, whatever amount of cents on the dollar they get paid is what they end up getting paid. They, those employees are probably not gonna get all of the wages that they otherwise would have been owed. Um, if the individual owners guaranteed the wages, um, I'm, I guess I'm a little confused by the question. If you're being paid like just by a person and not a corporation, yes, uh, your, your debts might be dischargeable. There are exceptions to dischargeability for certain things that might apply there, um, but generally, the person, even if they guaranteed them, if the individual owner guaranteed them, then you're just going to have to go after the individual owner if they're not a if they're not a bankruptcy debtor because uh, oh, I, so if the corporation filed for bankruptcy and it's gone, it's liquidated, and the claims were whatever they were and got paid. The employees, if they were guaranteed for some reason by the individual owner who didn't declare bankruptcy, then yes, that would be a separate claim. And remember, because it's not stayed, um, those debts are only discharged against the debts of the debtor. That doesn't discharge a guarantee necessarily based on those same debts because that's a separate claim against a separate person. The discharge only applies to the debtor, uh, but the debtor wouldn't get discharged in that scenario anyway because they would be an organization. They would just be gone. Um, but that wouldn't preclude claims against the individual. Sorry, that may have been a little bit confusing. Um, I might be, if, if it's helpful, if that didn't answer your question, I can go over it uh, a little bit more linearly at the end. Um, 
So, sorry. Um, so we already went through this pretty much. Um, the trustee will file a list of schedules of assets and liabilities if it's a chapter seven or if it's a chapter 11 or a chapter 13, the debtor or the chapter 13 trustee with their assistance files the schedules. Um, and then if your debt is not contingent, liquidated or undisputed, you might have to file a proof of claim. Um, if the debtor lists your claim as contingent, that means that they think that your claim is only owed if something happens in the future uh, that might never happen. Or if it's unliquidated, they say you don't even know how much your claim is, so I'm not going to have to pay it. Or if it's disputed, they say we're not saying we have liability for this debt at all. If any three of those things are marked off on the schedule, you have to file a proof of claim because otherwise you're not going to get paid. Um, and then if you file a proof of claim after the schedules say you owe one thing and your proof of claim says another, your proof of claim supersedes the schedules. Once you file the proof of claim, that's your claim. And it's allowed on that proof of claim unless the debtor objects to it. So it's like a burden shifting framework. The debtor gets to get the first say. They write on the schedules what they think your claim is then you get to file the proof of claim and say, no, this is what I'm owed. Then the debtor comes back and says, well, I object to what you think is owed. And then it's a little mini litigation, basically, between uh, the creditor and the debtor to determine the validity of the claim. And the court will enter an order that allows or disallows the claim in whatever amount the court says it's allowed. Um, well, I only got like 10 minutes left here, so I might have to pick up the pace a bit. I'm sorry. Uh, so estate property is distributed according to the priority scheme in 507 and 726. Uh, domestic support obligations get paid first generally. Um, like I said, those are very uh, important to bankruptcy. Uh, then our administrative expenses. So these are things that were um, required to get the case running, basically. So things that were necessary for bringing the case uh, professional fees, um, things that were necessary for providing the debtor, things that they needed to be able to even run through the case. Um, those are all administrative claims. Uh, third are priority rages. This is actually old. This number, 12,850, is now 13,650. Um, then uh, deposits. So if you're like a business with somebody's deposit, uh, you have to pay a certain amount for that. I think that amount has been raised as well. Uh, then taxes or priority claims. Um, then the general unsecured claims. Those are all of the people clambering for the pieces of the pie. And then last, the equity, the debtor. Now, this entire priority scheme is subject to a very large caveat that for a secured creditor, the secured creditor gets paid first if uh, it's proceeds of its collateral. You can't pay anybody, basically. You'll pay the administrative claims out of the secured claim proceeds, and then everything has to go to the secured creditor until its claim is paid in full, and then everything goes to the rest of the waterfall after that. Um, and if you don't pay... Uh, the secured creditor in full, then their lien generally survives the bankruptcy unless it's sold through a bankruptcy free and clear. Uh, so generally, the priority in the Chapter 11 cases, the relevant priority for most of it is uh, like administrative claims, then the priority claims, which are like, I mean, sorry, first the administrative claims, then the secured claims, then the priority claims, then the unsecured claims, then uh, the equity of the debtor. Uh, can the code ever? Can a court ever allow a debtor to violate the code's priority scheme? Yes, in very limited circumstances, but a very common, very limited circumstance, which is called a critical vendor. Uh, say you're a business and you're trying to reorganize, and you're dependent on like you make sweaters and you get like shipments of wool every like month or something like that, and you can't make your sweaters without getting the shipment of wool 
but the wool supplier is not going to keep shipping the wool unless you pay them on time. Generally, you wouldn't be allowed to do that because it's going to violate the priority, right? Because you're paying the critical vendor on time in the full where there's supposed to be a general unsecured claim. But you go to the court, you tell them, you make a motion for allowance of a critical vendor payment saying, I can't possibly reorganize without this person supplying me this stuff. And I, they won't supply it unless I pay in full. The court will usually enter those orders. And then that person gets paid uh, in full for the stuff that they are supplying you throughout the course of the um, critical vendor period. The chapter, the uh, creditors committee will often be like a watchdog on those um, executory contracts and leases. Uh, this is very important. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to rush this a little bit. Uh, but uh, if you have a contract with a debtor, okay, once you file for bankruptcy, you can't call a breach on that contract. I'm sorry, once the debtor files for bankruptcy and you are not the debtor, you can't call a breach on that contract without it being a violation of the automatic stay. And the bankruptcy code gives the debtor a lot of protections as to what they do with that contract or lease. Now, there is a provision 365 D3 that says that under a lease, they have to uh, timely perform it within the first 60 days of assumption or reject uh, before they decide whether to assume or reject it. Um, that's only things coming due pre-petition, I mean, post-petition. But um, generally, the debtor has a breathing period to evaluate its leases, evaluate its contracts. And then what it can do is it can reject them because it looks at them and says, this isn't doing my business any good to get in this contract. I get out of this contract. I reject the contract. And then what it does is it gives the person whose contract or lease was rejected a claim. It's an unsecured claim. And they get a pro rata share on you know the same terms as all the other general unsecured creditors. It might even be worse than the other general unsecured creditors if you're a lessee, I mean, lessor, because your landlord claim gets uh, capped under a statutory scheme. So if you have a lease for like 20 years, you're not going to be able to say you owe me 20 years of rent. It cuts it off. Uh, so you're only going to be able to get 15% um, of the remaining lease term uh, or one year's worth of damages, whatever is, a, I think, greater. Now, another thing you can do is even if you don't necessarily want to keep the lease or the contract, if applicable non-bankruptcy law allows it, uh, you can assume the lease, which means you know you uh, reaffirm it that you're going to do it. But then what you do is assign it. You give it to somebody else. They pay you for it and you give it to somebody else. Now there are provisions, so that brings assets into the bankruptcy estate. Now there are provisions obviously in contract law that preclude you from being able to assign certain things. Uh, generally like if it's something where performance is really, it's important who the identity of the person performing is, you're not gonna be able to assign that. And that's you know as frequent source of litigation within chapter 11. But it's in a very powerful thing that uh, debtors can do. And there's another common reason why they file for Chapter 11 is to uh, be able to renegotiate and reconfigure uh, what their contract and lease situation is like. Um, uh, this is just non-dischargeabilities, um, which generally means that you can't discharge certain things, mostly things procured by fraud if you have a debt that you only got the debt because you basically defrauded somebody you can't then file for bankruptcy and say oh i don't know you that anymore because i filed for bankruptcy and got discharged no if you did something fraudulently the debt sticks it rides through the bankruptcy you can't use it as like a tool to get away from uh from your obligations through fraud um these are just the hallmarks, the badges of fraud, so to say, of when something might be non-dischargeable. Uh, okay, this is the last little section here. Um, 
So in bankruptcy court, a judge, the bankruptcy judge is in like a really unique position because you litigate both bankruptcy issues and non-bankruptcy issues because it's a court of equity. And because of the automatic stay, other courts can't really adjudicate things while the bankruptcy case is going on very easily. So um, the court holds like what are called contested matters uh, for things like determining proofs of claim and liability on claims and things like that. So for instance, if somebody is saying like, oh, you defrauded me and you owe me this amount of money, the court, because the bankruptcy court is the one with jurisdiction at that point in time, is going to hold like a little mini trial on whether you committed a fraud or not and things like that. Um, and sometimes the bankruptcy court will abstain. Uh, there's mandatory abstention sometimes in cases where the state court has already proceeded like so far and it's already so obviously like a purely state law claim that the bankruptcy court shouldn't exercise jurisdiction of it, then they will abstain and let the state court litigation continue. Uh, and sometimes people remove things to the bankruptcy court, and then the court has to make that determination itself. Um, and there's also discretionary abstention, which is, I think, 305, um, where the court can just at any time, if it determines that it's not required to exercise jurisdiction, it can dis, uh, use its discretion to abstain. But that's also pretty much only happens in my experience during when there would have been mandatory abstention anyway. Um, so the last thing I wanted to say real quick, I just mentioned contested matters. There's also things called adversary proceedings, which is like you file another little case inside the bankruptcy case. It's the case within a case. And it's just like if you were to file a federal cause of action against somebody, all of the federal rules of civil procedure generally apply. Uh, you have to file a complaint. They have to answer. They can file a motion to dismiss. The court is almost always going to be you know, ruling from the bench. There's not really a jury trial right generally. That's an important thing. Because uh, if there is a jury trial right, you can always say that you don't consent to the bankruptcy court entering a final order. And then if that's the case, the district court will either take over from the bankruptcy court because the district court's an Article Three court. It has the jurisdictional power, whereas the bankruptcy court is an Article One court. Um, and it can rule on it itself, or the bankruptcy court will do the whole thing itself. And then instead of issue a judgment, they issue what's called a report and recommendation, like a magistrate judge does. And then they just send that up to the district court and it reviews it and either affirms it or enters its own rulings. And a bunch of uh, things, there's a list here, a bunch of things can be done without filing an adversary proceeding, like uh, objections to a bankruptcy plan, objections to a proof of claim, relief from the automatic stay. Those are all very core bankruptcy-centric matters. But then if there's something that's tangentially related to the bankruptcy, like for instance, in my previous example, whether uh, it was like a finding of fraud or something, or um, something like um, a lien or the, the big ones, like an avoidance action, uh, all of those things that are less like more akin to state law causes of action have to be filed by adversary proceeding. Um, okay, so I kind of sprinted to the end there. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, my timing, I'm going to just throw Mark under the bus and say it was his fault because he's not here, but don't tell him I said that. Nah, I mean, I'm just joking. Um, so we're a little bit over the... Time, I think I got 501 on my watch. So if anybody has any final questions, especially from that sprint at the end there that I did, uh, please let me know. Um, if you don't have any that you can think of right now, I, you can absolutely contact me. Um, my email address is james.britton at afslaw.com. Or as I said at the beginning, uh, Noah will be circulating the slide deck. So hopefully if I didn't cover 
any of your questions, the slide deck will. Um, I'll just wait a minute to see if anybody else had any other questions. If anyone has any last minute questions, feel free to submit. But seeing none coming in so far, so I want to say thank you to James and also thank you to Mark for starting with Zion with us today for organizing putting us together. And with that being said, seeing none, I'm just going to say have a good one, everyone. And again, um, hope to see you in the next program. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye.